What if I told you there was a way that you or your clients could speak directly to a captive audience of senior agency leaders, CEOs and managing directors of some of the biggest agencies in the world? Well, that's what you get when you sponsor the Agency Deal Masters podcast. We have thousands of monthly listeners from all over the world, and it's not just agency owners. Over 25% of our audience are also senior marketing brand leaders from the likes of Aviva, BMW, Salesforce, and Google. As we continue to attract big names to the show like Adobe, Revolut, and Virgin Money, you can be sure that Agency Deal Masters will be the place for you to get your brand's message directly into the ears of the people that you want to be speaking to. So head over to agencydealmasters.com slash sponsor or email me at nathan at agencydealmasters.com to find out more. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Adetun J. Paul is a brand strategist and founder and director of Studio Black, a content company and community celebrating the untold stories of African artists. We have never had anyone on the show who can give us such an in-depth perspective on the creative media landscape in Africa and the massive untapped opportunities that brands and agencies are missing out on by not accessing such a treasure trove of creative talent. There are certain brands like Nike and Coke who are working with creative talent on the continent and are truly creating differentiating experiences because of it. But Africa is not on a lot of brands and agencies' minds, but the ones who do access talent there are truly reaping the significant rewards. Aditunjay talks about the challenges the continent faces, most notably around inept leadership, which I'm sure we can all relate to. But there are real challenges around income inequality, infrastructure. And while these challenges are real and, and, and they're present, there's a generation of young Africans who see the world very differently to older generations of leaders and are putting more emphasis on the arts and African creativity. Take a listen to his excellent podcast, Bantu, and you'll understand what I'm talking about. If you are even remotely interested in anything to do with Africa, the media landscape, the arts, and creative talent on the continent, then you will find this conversation to be absolutely fascinating. So without me keeping you in suspense any further, my conversation with Editor J. Paul. My extra special guest this week is Editor J. Paul, the founder of Studio Black, a content company and community committed to celebrating the untold stories of African artists, makers, and all-round creatives. He has an excellent new podcast as well called Bantu, a bi-weekly podcast where he tells the stories of talented Africans and the African creative industry. He is also the growth marketing manager at Atomic, a B2B marketing agency in Ireland. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Adetun J. Paul, welcome to Agency Dealmasters. Thank you, Nathan. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Super excited to have you on the show. I came across your podcast, Bantu. I think you just released episode one. First of all, visually creative, stunningly beautiful episode one is super fascinating as well, all about the creative landscape in Africa, which we'll sort of talk about in much more detail a little bit later on. Thank you. Let's start with your history and background because it's super fascinating. So you studied computer science at university. 
Yeah. You got bored and then you were trained to become a graphic designer in Lagos, which then was kind of your entry route into marketing and this world. Yeah. Tell us about your route into marketing and branding from your start in Nigeria to where you are now in Ireland with Atomic. The fact of the matter is that I started in Ukraine Hmm. and it started with graphic design. And yeah, a lot of my clients were Nigerian, but because the fact of the matter is that I have been based outside Nigeria for really, really the last decade. When things began, yeah, I was fed up with computer science and computer engineering. It wasn't what I wanted to do. I had dreams of being something called a software architect. And I thought that people just would sit down and they would write the logical plans of exactly how the software work. And something like that really got my blood boiling. (laughs) But graphic design kind of came as a a soothe, you know, it was like a disillusionment. (laughs) What can I do with this laptop now that I have so much time and I don't even want to go for classes. And so that's kind of how I I started practicing with Photoshop. I started doing so many sort of getting better at the craft. And then I started selling as a service, which was fine because I could make a little bit of money. As a student, that's really, really important, you know. So when I finally got my confidence up, I started this company with um, my partner and friend at the time. And that is kind of how the path to marketing really began because throughout their time, there was more strategic questions. There was more and more, why should we do this? Why are we saying this in this particular way? And what should we say that would get the best impact? My clients didn't really have all those answers, but I seem to have to get those answers in order for me to create the best design. And eventually... I dropped the design altogether and just kind of focused on the questions and the answers, which is the strategy itself. Really interesting. So you, you've got this sort of dual background of being quite technical, left brain thinking, sort of the computer science, computer programming background. You've got this creative right brain design thinking part to you. Yeah. But you've also got the strategy component, sort of, you know, brand strategy, marketing strategy at a really high level you're kind of like the you know you're a triple threat really in 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 many ways (laughs) so talk about your time in Ukraine because I didn't know about that at all talk about your time in Ukraine what took you there and what perspective does your Nigerian background and the Irish experience that you have now at Atomic do to the way that you think about the media landscape and growing brands and tell us a little bit about how your experiences in your background in all these various different countries contribute to the way that you think about the media landscape and marketing today? So I started out in Nigeria and then I went to Ukraine to do a bachelor's degree. And when I started getting into design, I took it very seriously. When I tend to do something, I ruminate for months and months and then I go all into it. And so I found a local, let's call it a design sweatshop, but um, he wouldn't like me calling it that. So let's call it a small <laughs> design agency. Right. And it was called Workshop Design Studio. I was an intern there. I wanted to be a professional. And so I reached out to them. They're a Ukrainian company. And I said, hey, I'm, I'm looking to become a designer. Um, do you have a spot? It took about two months for them to see my email. But when they did, They invited me over. They gave me a test. I designed the thing. They said, okay, start coming from tomorrow. 
And they said, oh, one more thing. We don't use Photoshop here. We use Illustrator. I said, okay, this is European perspective. Everybody in Nigeria, because I was part of the Nigerian design community at least, everybody used Photoshop. Mm. Illustrator was not a thing. Mm. But then this culture of being precise, which is what Illustrator allows you to do, being precise, repeatability and scalability of a design application, that started to come out. And it's one of the first things I learned about, let's just say, design in Europe, which was that if you can make it into a small square, you must also be able to make it into a billboard and nothing should change. No quality should be reduced. And so there was that. The second thing I learned was that the agency bosses there, they took life a little bit more relaxed. My boss himself was a very, very happy-go-lucky guy. I met a couple of agency bosses. Uh, one of them is now running a company called Zajno, and they've been going for a while. They're over in Russia. Um, the leader there is Sasha Turishev. And when I spoke to him over a couple of times, he was a, he was a long-bearded guy. He wore vans everywhere he went. Mm-hmm. But their craft was top-notch. And yeah, you can see a few more studios that came out of the eastern side of Europe with that same one I mentioned, Zajno, and these other people called Too Big Studio, who are over in the middle of the country. Mm. Everybody looks like a hipster, but they take their craft as seriously as anyone can. They don't joke with it. And that's something that I really picked up. It stuck with me because I thought, if you really want to do something, if you really want to get into design or marketing, whatever it is, you have to take it further. You have to go all in and you have to take it very, very seriously. So fast forward to coming to Europe um, or rather coming to West Europe. And by the time I came to West Europe, I wasn't thinking about design anymore, even though I was doing it. I was thinking about how do we answer the, the biggest issues, the issues with, you know, brand strategy and what a company should do and what a company should should market. And my perspective was still coming from Eastern Europe. I still thought, you know, everybody is super serious at their work, but they can look like, you know, they maybe live on the street, for example. Mm. Um, with Western Europe, it's a little bit different. There's a variety of types of agencies in, in Ireland alone. There's some agencies where people wear, you know, a, a, a whole suit and tie and they come to work every day and they design the most creative things. And I've never really thought that large design organizations really, really can be trusted. But there are some who wear the suit and tie and they create amazing work. The disparity between the European styles, um, East and West, and sort of my Nigerian perspective on this was was sort of threefold. The first thing was that in the West, like I said, there were suits and ties who did great design. And then there were hipsters who did sort of okay things. And where I came in was that I had not gone to design school. And everybody in the West of Europe was mostly educated. Whereas most people, most people in the East of Europe were self-taught, just like myself, I was self-taught. And I figured by that time that it was enough to be self-taught in any area that you wanted to do. You could self-teach yourself marketing, you could self-teach yourself strategy, you could self-teach yourself brand strategy. And as long as you showed that you did good work, it was enough. 
But in the West, it's a little bit different because we have things like pedigree. Who have you worked for before? And who else knows about your so-called expertise? And those things count a bit more than the ability to do the work. So doing the work is just the baseline. Doing good work is expected. Who have you done the work with? Who have you done the work for? And as a Nigerian, well, I had not worked with any major brands before. I had also never worked in an agency before, except that agency was my startup or um, the one company that I had where I was brand director, and that was a health insurance agency. And so that really changed my outlook on what it means to be a professional in this space. And then when I looked at the market as a whole, and I tried my best to observe how do people do brand growth? How do people do brand campaigns? It kind of seemed to me that a lot of people follow similar formulas, but most of the time, agencies have different flavors. Um, creative businesses have different flavors. And channels are really, really replicated across the same space. We have digital, and digital is just basically, if it's, if it's not physical and it doesn't exist in real life, then it's digital. And then you have TV, mm-hmm. and then you have out of the home, you have radio um, and, and print. And with all these things combined together, there are a number of people from people calling themselves agencies to consultancies who do the same thing. But the approach really is an existing brand is an existing brand approaches some company and they try their best to go through some kind of discovery session. And from there, they will figure out that, okay, this is your problem. And here's how we are going to solve it for you. Agency, the client pays a good amount of money and everybody's happy afterwards. I didn't think like that. The experience that I had working in Eastern Europe was that we started with, most of the time we started with the logo. It was, if you have the logo, you can create a holistic brand. And I carry that idea of holistic branding from Eastern Europe all the way to my MBA at Dublin Business School, where I did my master's thesis. And it talked about something called brand experience and how brands needed to think about the entire experience from end to end. Where does your customer encounter you for the first time? Where else will they encounter you? And how can you shape that entire life of what that person experiences in one go? in one in one maybe single map now of course not one single person does that but what's important is that you're thinking about it and i think probably not to brag but i might still be the one of the few people i've met who think like that and i'm still waiting to learn a bit more about what's the differences and why are things the way they are right now what is the market factors that in, that made it so that people followed a particular style of formula when it comes to brand growth and how we apply brands to media um, properties across you know the country? Agency Dealmasters produced strategic B2B podcasts for agencies and brands so you can win new business and generate new leads. We've helped several businesses create shows to start new business conversations with their ideal target customers and generate new business revenue in the process. It works so well for one client, they've completely stopped all other forms of marketing to focus 100% on podcasting as their main source of new business and lead generation. 
They've generated over a million pounds worth in new business revenue over the last 14 months. No other channel gives you unprecedented access to your ideal target buyers that includes ABM, email, and other direct approaches. To find out how a strategic B2B podcast could help your business, head over to agencydealmasters.com or email me at nathan at agencydealmasters.com. There are so many places that we can go with this. <laughs> One of the things that you just, that you talked about was, I guess, the barrier that self-taught designers and creatives have when entering the industry, or at least uh, working with agencies or working with brands. Who have you done this for? Where have you done this for? Show me your work. And self-taught, uh, you know, uh, people from Africa or Eastern Europe or other parts of the world may not have that experience and, and that background, that portfolio to show doesn't, doesn't mean to say that they aren't credible and they aren't capable. Talk a little bit about, from your perspective, both <laughs> Eastern Europe, Western Europe and Nigeria um, in Africa, talk about what are the barriers that you see African creatives have when they're trying to work with brands, work with agencies in the West, in Western Europe, mm -hmm. and how are they trying to overcome those challenges? Because we know that there's amazing talent all over the world. You know, yeah. Talent is equally distributed everywhere. It's just opportunity isn't. So talk a little bit about the challenges that African creatives have and how they're overcoming them. One of the people that I spoke to in the course of this project, uh, Bantu, his name is Funfere. And he really showed me that not only are a lot of these challenges very widespread and far-reaching, there's only limited ways to overcome them. So the first issue was media coverage. A lot of people have heard of Laolu NYC by now. Um, Laolu famously painted dancers and Beyonce herself for Beyonce's video. He's given TED Talks. The thing about Lao Lu is that he is an exception, an anomaly, and not necessarily the general rule. A lot of African creatives obviously don't get quite as famous as Lao Lu. Lao Lu eventually um, moved to New York and he's making a living there. There are issues with trying to replicate that same kind of model. And so once in a while, once in a while, a media story will arise about one specific person, but not necessarily about the industry as a whole or what the arts are doing or whether there's development. And the fact of the matter is that there aren't so many initiatives that support growth of the arts and creativity in Africa, mainly because we have to be honest with ourselves. We have other priorities. Um, it's no secret that there are, we live in you know, a lot of low-income nations and the many people who don't have the disposable income to buy art. So the only avenue that's kind of left is who are the big buyers then? If the local people can't buy art, who does? And that's where creative companies like agencies come in. That's where brands come in. And that's kind of where other creatives who are much bigger come in. Mm. So obviously right now, the biggest buyers are people who 
our record labels, A&Rs, and they will find artists, creatives to either shoot, direct their music videos. Maybe I make the make music videos animated. That would combine the work of hundreds of people from illustrators to um, motion graphic designers, not all of them African, which is kind of the equity problem we're having, but some of them would be. The second part is that they would get some of these photographers, um, illustrators, and they would produce the album covers or the music cover arts for for the music. And these are the biggest buyers. Um, the second largest buyers are the tech industry. Um, there's so many murals because it's now kind of cool and trendy to have a well-designed office. And it's cool and trendy to have well-designed merchandise as a tech company. And so a lot of African creators find themselves creating for that. There isn't so much of an in-between because if you really, really want to be an art mogul in the real sense of the word, you want to have exhibitions and you want to be on exhibition in galleries or in, I guess, museums or something. And getting to the point where your prints are valuable enough is quite difficult just because there's not enough economies of scale. There's not enough exposure, which is kind of the third problem. People don't mind buying something that looks good. Um, if you go on websites like Redbubble, Public, you'll find loads of artists who are making small merchandise that people buy, prints of different sizes. But if you can't get discovered then nobody's going to buy your artwork. And if nobody buys your artwork, you don't really have more money to make more artwork. And so a lot of artists are working more or less full-time other jobs while they try to be an artist. And where their art grants, you know, um, for example, there's an organization in Ireland called Creative Ireland that supports the work of artists. Um, and there's similar organizations in the UK. In Nigeria, those or sorry, in Africa, those organizations, not that they don't exist, they just don't have all that much power to give grants and support artists who may be doing good work. And so there's a struggle to get discovered and visible enough for you to get support. And then when you do get support, it's about how do I then get a brand or a company or somebody who has a lot of, a lot of money and a lot of resources mm. to commission something from me so that I can keep making a living. Mm. And these type of challenges, they are wicked problems, right? Um, in that the, the conditions to fix them, they change with the sway of the economy. Marketing budgets took a huge cut in 2020 because of the pandemic. This is no denying. Um, they were taking a huge cut before the pandemic, but they were starting to pick up. A lot of, there was a lot of investment in 2019. There was a lot of campaigns that had high-reaching effects. Um, and when 2020 hits, even in 2021, their marketing budgets were cut. It's only now that we're seeing that, okay, so we can't market the same way we used to, but we need to put some money in. And when marketing budgets are cut, the people who marketers use to convey the messages are creatives. The directors, the, photograph the photographers, the artists, and when they are out of a job, the production companies are out of a job. And so there's a real cascading effect of the economy on the creative industry just because the main way we use creativity in Africa 
and in the global context is to sell more products. And there's still a, there's a huge global problem of how do we get people to buy art just for the sake of the art and not just because it helps to buy a product. And these are kind of like the challenges I've, I've, I've identified in, in the market. And um, I suppose what I would say is there isn't any one solution, but it's just so that people are aware, people who are listening to this are aware that, yeah, we could be Laolu NYC and we could be, you know, Paula Sher, but we don't necessarily live in the same economy. We didn't grow up in the same place. And most of us could not afford or even have access to formal training. Many people in the West of Europe um, went to design school. So many. And it's not even difficult to go to. You could study anything you want because the government pays for half of your tuition. Um, design school is not something that you find in Africa. Even the last interview that I had um, on the podcast where I speak to a, a Kenyan lady called Nzilani Simo, she describes how she, how she had her education in Canada. And then she went for a design education in Indonesia. So if Africans have to go outside Africa to gain a good creative education, that greatly reduces the chances of great artists coming in locally, or just rather growing up locally. So there are a number of challenges there that you identified. Um, and I guess one of the solutions that you've come up with to sort of help uh, sort of surface African creatives that brands and agencies can use is Studio Black. So you yeah. set up Studio Black in, in 2020. Uh, it's a content company and community commit, committed to celebrating the untold stories of African artists, makers and all-around creatives. So tell us about some of the, uh, you know, I, I know that you're in season one at the moment and you've uh, released two episodes so far. They're both amazing, by the way. I recommend everyone listening should go and, and check them out. Thank you. Tell us some of the untold stories about Africa that you feel that brands and agencies are missing out on. Um, because when it comes to creativity and differentiation, if we're not tapping into other areas of the world, there's potentially huge missed opportunities there that brands aren't capitalizing on for the purpose of, you know, uh, differentiation and, and, and cut through and, and, and all the rest of it. So maybe talk a little bit about some of the untold stories that you've come across that you feel that brands and agencies in the West are missing out on. I think the biggest untold story comes from my own culture. So I'm Yoruba. I was born a Nigerian. Um, and my two parents are from the Yoruba ethnic group. Now, just before I get into that, um, a lot of people know Super Dry. And Super Dry is characterized by its influence of Japanese symbolism. And so the Super Dry shop has a lot of um, kanji, which is what they call the Japanese alphabet. And they have these influences of you know, Japanese symbols, sometimes you might see mythical uh, things that they try to do it postmodern. Um, the fact of the matter is Super Dry is not a Japanese brand. Um, and most people don't know that. It is actually run by two British men. Okay. And they have taken the Japanese symbolism to create products that people actually love. Super Dry has stores all over the world. Now, Going back to the Yoruba thing I mentioned, right? A lot of people do not know that there is a rich culture or history, mythical history, 
for not only the Yoruba ethnic groups, but a lot of ethnic groups in, in, in Nigeria and in Africa. One of them, for example, is the, the history of the Orishas in, in Yoruba culture. And they were essentially a group of goddesses. And I'm going to butcher this for anybody who's listening. Um, but they were, they were a group of goddesses, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yes, people who know the real who story. The you real have story. Yemoja, um, <laughs> who is one of the one of the Yoruba goddesses, and there are symbolisms from that time that look really, really cool once you find out what it looks like. Um, but you can take those symbolisms, you can take those sort of stories, and infuse them into products, and infuse them into even media that is meant for entertainment and just because they're new like the biggest power of marketing as i always believe is novelty and because they're new people are interested in it until today some people are still surprised when they enter a super dry store i I, when i enter a super dry store i'm still like i wonder if these japanese symbols even mean anything but they look cool and i want one of them and that's kind of the that's kind of the way that you can leverage culture. Sure. There's also another thing. It's also a Nigerian thing. It's the Igbo writing system, and they have their own. They've they've tried to refine their own alphabet. And there was a person who tried to refine this alphabet and release it in a book last year. The Igbo writing system is actually quite interesting because you could say anything you want with it, but it looks cool. And the Ibos are a tribe in, in Nigeria. Yes. Just for those that aren't aware. They're an, exactly. They're a tribe in Nigeria. They're an ethnic group in Nigeria. And one of the things that Laolu, for example, has done is taken Yoruba symbolism and African symbolism, our sort of writing and pattern system, and converted it into something that people want. And so he does that pattern on bags, and he does the pattern on human bodies, he does the pattern on anything that has a surface. Mm. And my entire point of Studio Black is just trying to say that there are similar, similar cultures, similar subcultures that you can apply to whatever it is you want to do. Whether you're selling to Africans or not, it doesn't matter. The fact of the matter is everybody brings in things from outside of their own culture to sell to the people within a particular market. Superdry is doing the same thing. Mm. Um, there's aspects of brands like even Louis Vuitton who are doing the same thing. Um, brands like Unilever have had a, a scent, a deodorant spray called Africa for about 20 something years, 25 year anniversary this year. And people love it. Mm. I recently saw an ad for Lynx Africa. People want it. It's not because of Africa itself, but the idea that this thing that looks really, really strange, looks really, really interesting, can help you sell products, can help you use it for really, really interesting stories that you can tell in the media. That's kind of where we're looking at. There's so much lore that brands and organizations can leverage. Mm. And that's what Studio Black is trying to pull out because when I've talked to a couple of people on this podcast and they've told me where they come from, I could see that everybody is kind of very unique. 
And if I took each and every one of those stories and I made a film out of it, I'm sure that people will want to find it just because there's enough there. There's enough history there that is rich enough. We know about the Vikings. The Vikings are a show, don't we? People in China watch the Vikings. Mm-hmm. There's really no reason why there can't be, I'm going to steal this from <laughs> my, my, my cousin, African Game of Thrones. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that would be amazing on so many levels. Yeah, why is there not an African Game of Thrones? That would be, that's just a great idea you just put in my head. Um, yeah. So if you want to leverage the idea, you have to reach out to Jessica North to just put it in out there. Jessica North. Okay. <laughs> Noted. Yes. And by the way, we'll put the links to some of the people that you've um, mentioned so far in the show notes. If anyone wants to go and check out uh, Laulu cool. or any, anyone else that you've, that you've mentioned. So let's talk a little bit about the media landscape in Africa, because you touched on, I guess, a couple of things, really. I mean, look, yeah, the the ter- the the stat that's banded around is that in Africa there are more people under there are a billion people under the age of what is it twenty or nineteen? It's the youngest population, um, youngest continent on on Earth. It's a massive untapped potential spending power as Africans become more affluent. Yeah, brands would potentially be looking to Africa as as uh, as a place to sort of start marketing and sort of entering and, and, and selling their, their products and services. Yeah. Talk about some of the challenges and opportunities. We'll talk about some of the opportunities first and foremost for brands and agencies in Africa. Yeah. And then talk about some of the challenges that they have reaching and marketing to Africans because in the context of the media landscape, because what we've heard previously is that at least from a technology point of view or a, a cell phone point of view, uh, there was this huge jump from, you know, straight to mobile across the continent. Not yeah. sure how true that is, but that's the sort of thing that's been been banded around. Talk a little bit about the media landscape. Talk about the opportunities yeah. for brands in Africa and, and some, of the, some of the challenges as well. The media landscape in Africa is, is fragmented. While there are, and shout out to... Uh, David Adeleke, who gave me a lot of this information. Um, there, there are two main disparities. So in the West of the world, and I say West, I mean the UK, US, more developed countries, they, a lot of big publishers are shifting towards a subscription-based model. And this is working because, for example, the New York Times has had, they claim to have 7.8 million subscribers and they acquired them since 2012. Um, and that's really because the advertising model for media companies is dying. And, the, you know, people are getting their news from everywhere else except WhatsApp forwarding, you know, things like that. Everywhere else except going to the website. And so you can't rely on impressions or um, which is the number of people who see the website in a day to sell advertising anymore. Right. Then you have to do subscriptions. But in Africa, it's a little bit of the reverse. One of the main issues is that disposable income is not really as high as other areas of the world. And so, yeah, there are a lot of young people. Um, but a lot of young people in Africa are used to getting stuff for free. In fact, a lot of young people in the world um, are used to getting stuff for free. And so it's a bit of a challenge to, <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> It's, right. it's a bit of a challenge to... I'm still getting stuff. That's the truth, you know. Sign up with a new Netflix account every two days. 
um, <laughs> <laughs> to make people believe that something is is worth parting with their hard-earned money for. Um, David gives the example of multi-choice, which is you know a a very it's a multinational content provider in 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 Africa, and they've scaled their business since the nineties. They provide digital direct to TV. Um, subscriptions. One of the things they've done is that they've tiered their content. And so everything is, whatever income you have, there is a package for you to watch great TV. Um, But multi-choice is not the rule. It is an anomaly. And so when we're looking at the media landscape, we're looking at economic issues. And then suppressive governments that prevent real reporting and outside of real reporting then there's the cost of the internet and so not to say that it's impossible it's just that brands who want to make it and brands who want to successfully reach digital audiences or audiences on traditional media they have to take into account that Content has to be short. You cannot, it cannot require a lot of data to consume. It also can't be too frequent because it, it requires a lot more data to consume. Yeah, a lot of young people now have smartphones, true. Um, but even at that, a lot of them don't have access to available internet. And this is, isn't something that brands can solve it's more of a case of how do we how do we make enough noise so that governments or other supporting governments can enable african countries with the biggest markets to offer easy and free access to information there's a lot that is going on now that prevents this from happening but the opportunity there is leverage existing culture i talk about this brand from indonesia called indomie and how they have a bunch of superheroes who wear skin tight suits, and we fact we like no African hero looks like that. Mm-hmm. You know, no none of the Ghanaian heroes look like that. Um, there's a guy mm. called Shango, he's a Yoruba deity, mm. and he never wore skin tight. I mean, we didn't even have the ability to make latex. So what are we saying? You know, if we look at the those kind of things, it just. <laughs> And and this brand Indomie is widespread across well, Indomie is Indomie is like a s- subtle dominator of the African market and the Asian market. They make noodles, and their brand of noodles is everywhere. Mm. They permeated the market since the nineties. They've been around a long time. What <laughs> they realized was, and this is what brands have to do all the time, is that they have to keep on refreshing their brand and their category for new buyers as they come of age and start making money. So I learned about Indomie when I was a child. I didn't have the money to buy it. But now I'm an adult and I do have money to buy it. I need a good reason to. And so that's why the brand looks a a little bit different today, right? So those kind of things are things you can leverage. Because I think, yeah, people, brands like Indomie are what we call an incumbent. We will buy Indomie regardless of the skin tight suits. But if there was Shongo or, um, you know, Amadioha, on the on the packaging of the Indomie, we might want to buy it a little bit more just because we feel represented. And this is the thing. 
you can't run a brand in Nigeria or in Africa or in Ghana or in Kenya or South Africa without making sure that the local people feel represented. And this goes down from the production of your communications, the production of the product itself to how it's marketed. And then if you can leverage existing culture, there is so much that we we would buy just because we see ourselves in it. So that's the opportunity. Mm. The biggest challenge is that because of, you know, uh, let's just call it a peculiar situation in Africa. And, you know, I don't need to go into all the various governments who, you know, are less than savory. Um, we could be here for some time. We would be here for some time. Let's just say that it has not allowed data on the real situation in Africa to be readily available. And there are some startups now um, that are trying to fix that. But brands in the West, they make decisions with data. Strategists for these brands make decisions with data. What are people, what have people have been saying about their um, affinity to pet food in Brazil? And there's data for that. The issue with Africa is that there isn't as much data, and which means that you have to take higher risks. You'd have to take more gambles with what you spend on when it comes to communications and products. Because it's very, if you had about 100 or 90% guarantee that something is going to work in the market, when it comes to Africa, you have a lot less because there's really just not that amount of data. And you can collect the data if you wanted to. You could run surveys, you could run focus groups, but that also takes an investment that you have to weigh against what you're eventually producing. Sure. And and that's not something that we can easily solve, but that is a huge challenge for brands that are operating in Africa. We're going to have to get you back on the show because there's a million questions that I didn't get the chance to ask but we're running out of time. Let's get into everyone's favorite questions. These are the questions that I ask all of my guests. So I'm really excited to ask you some of these as well. I'm going to choose some of these at random yeah. and fire them at you. Um, well, I'll start with my my favorite one that I ask everyone. Mm-hmm. Tell us about a time when you failed and what you learned from the experience. Hmm. So one time I was, I volunteered for a project in one of my past roles. And I volunteered to essentially single-handedly produce the project myself. Now, I didn't really meet the expectations of the owners of the project. Um, There were comments that I was not fast enough. (laughs) I was not really clear enough with what I was going to do or how I was going to work. Mm. Um, Now, not to say that, you know, they are blameless. Um, However, being as a responsible person, I've thought about it a lot. I've thought about it like, what if I was an agency myself and those people who I promised delivery of this particular project were my clients and I lost the business just like I did? Um, what would I learn from that? And I learned that expectations have to be clear at the start. Um, really, really clear. Like there can be no room for ambiguity. Mm so far as the relationship is a new one and there are things that have not been discussed before. So if I don't know how a group of people will operate previously, it's very hard for me to predict how they would do. So 
expectations must be very, very clear. And the second lesson I learned out of that is some projects should be outsourced. Uh, and it's not because you can't do it yourself, because back then I used to I used to have really more of a I'm a one man army kind of person. I taught myself everything. I can do everything. And yes, maybe I could do everything, right. but I shouldn't. And the reason why is because it can be less risky. Should I do everything? Yeah, no, should I shouldn't. you do everything? Yeah. And I learned that afterwards because it's it's less risky to do, you know, to to collaborate with with more people. Doing something yourself alone, it you you assume all of the risk and sometimes it's your word against the clients. And well, clients are always right in a way that if they're giving you the business, um and they take it away from you, you know, there's nothing you can do. So the best solutions are the creative and the collaborative ones if you want to do good work. Tell us about some of your early mentors. Who influenced the way that you think about brand strategy, uh, marketing strategy, growing brands? Tell us about some of your favorite mentors. I didn't really have a lot of mentors um, growing into my position. But I did admire a couple of people. I, cl- I closely followed the work uh, of certain people from afar. Um, people like Mark Pollard. Yeah. Yeah. Those are mentors as well. I yeah. Guess those yeah. People as mentors. So those are people like Mark mm-hmm. Pollard, um, Mark Pollard. Rachel right. Mercer. She is now chief experience officer at Proto and she was head of strategy at RGA. And uh, Zoe Scaman, who is the chief strategy officer at Bodacious. And Zoe Scammon especially because her style of strategy is is extremely unique. Mm. And if not for following her work, I think I may not have the confidence to take some of the risks that I've taken in my career today. And so it's been a, a big inspiration, all three of them. Really fascinating. Tell us about, so I'm going to add all of those to my, to my list now and sort of see if I can get them on the show. Tell us about some of your favorite books. Uh, what do you read for personal development, professional development? What books do you keep on going back to time and time again on brand strategy or just to kick back on a Sunday afternoon? Hmm. Okay. So three books right now. The first is Truth, Lies and Advertising by John Steele. This book was written a long time ago, but I go back to it because he, so a lot of people regard John Steele as the father of account planning and the father of account strategy. And the book is gold. I just have to say like some of the ideas might be dated now because it was written in the nineties, but the principle is it's, it's still all there. And the the guy is a very smart man. The second one is the subtle art of not giving a fuck by Mark Manson. Mm-hmm. He he writes this he writes this book that essentially tells you to tell yourself like it is and I go back to that a lot because sometimes I feel lost sometimes I feel like maybe I'm putting on I'm I'm being presumptuous with myself um and you know he's sort of no nonsense sort of straight talking attitude and I read a few paragraphs and I think Oh yeah, you're just being silly, you know. That's that's something that's really um great. Interesting. I'm reading right now Strategy is Your Words by Mark Pollard because as far as Mark does, 
he explains the role of strategists and idea making you know the business of idea making in a really clear and concise way but he also tells it like it is it's 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 a life that most people try to live and that book is a guide that's i've i've gone halfway through but i know that once i finish this i will go back to it again strategy is your words word. strategy is your words yeah and maybe as a bonus i read a lot of sci-fi and i used to read a lot of sci-fi but uh, i've been following the work of david weber um and his whole series of books is called the honor verse i would recommend anyone who is interested in politics strategy just general sci-fi space stuff to go read that because it's a it's a great dramatization of i guess what our current worlds are like just with you know different names like if america was a is a space nation or the united kingdom was a was in star wars you know that kind of thing really fascinating okay i'm going to add i'm going to add all of those to my too long Amazon reading list. Um, Truth, Lies and Advertising by John Steele. The Subtle Art of Not Giving a... I'm, <laughs> Don't. I'm not going to swear. You but, can bleep mine. Um, Mark Manson. He's such a polarizing person and I started reading it and um, it just it just wasn't for me at the time, but I've heard a lot of people uh, really love the book, so I might have to, have to go back to it. Strategy is Your Words and then David Weber. Okay, thank you for all of those suggestions sure last couple of questions and then i'll let you go what do you do to keep mentally and physically fit i try to exercise for about 30 minutes four days a week uh keyword is try in quotes um <laughs> okay try try I try uh <laughs> right. i guess i do a lot to keep i do more to keep mentally fit so I get decision fatigue and I have limited energy to focus okay. and switch between projects. There's no, in every you know person's professional life, you're never doing just one thing. You're juggling a bunch of things and mentally going from one space to another sometimes can be stressful. And so when I feel like I have run out of juice, I've run out of fuel, I know that I can always fall back to doing something creative. And so it helps to play the guitar or try drawing or try writing something that has low stakes. Nice. Um, sometimes it also helps to focus on something that feels rewarding and the stakes are low, like playing a game. I play a lot of games. Um, people know me for that. And mm. I would happily give recommendations to anyone. Strategy games are the best. Tell us some of your favorite. So, right, I played Cyberpunk 2077. A lot of mm -hmm. people would have heard of that. It's on the side of buses. Controversial game, but... Why is, why is it controversial? Because the developers promised us a fantastic game, and when it came out, there were a lot of things wrong with it. And a lot of people got refunds. They're still issuing refunds today, five months later. Okay. Yeah. They improved it, but it was kind of wow. too late. They lost the confidence wow. of majority yeah. of gamers. That's why it's controversial. Um... The second one there, I would say, is Planetary Annihilation. Planetary Annihilation. Plat planetary Annihilation Titans. It's a game where you, you, get, to, you get to control, a, I guess, a robotic commander of uh, a global force, and you get to fight another commander for the same resources. If you enjoy giving orders and watching things blow up, 
uh, I would recommend that game. <laughs> okay, that's a good one. Okay, I'm gonna add those to my list as well. I don't know. I don't know where you find the time in between brand strategy and everything else. I don't, doing, to be honest. Creating podcasts and sometimes I go weeks without ever picking up a controller. You know, but it is what it is. Oh yeah, it's it just save it for the holidays uh amazon prime or netflix what are you watching or streaming that's good is there anything that you recommend netflix all the way like i only have mental space for one thing right now i do netflix and i have apple tv but not by choice i have it for free so it's whatever mm-hmm. uh the big bang theory Shit's creek okay superstore kim's convenience if you can watch all four of those back to back i guarantee you you have a good year a good year it'll take you a year to watch all of them unless you don't have a life Uh, if not (laughs) yeah life i i I recently i recently got into superstore so funny hilarious about the life of people that live you know that work in in superstores and uh 20 minutes super short uh yeah very quirky yeah it's a it's a, yeah. it's a good recommendation um last couple of questions what advice would you give to a young person or millennial who wants to start a career in brand so strategy? i'll say something that i wish someone told me when i started which is you have to do your best to find out what every single person in the agency does what does an account manager do? What does the creative director actually do? What does the designers that are under his team do? Everybody, you need to know everybody's single role. If you're young and you can figure out what everyone does, and then you look at the client side and you can figure out what the client's roles are. What is their main job? Like, why are they coming to your agency? When you have a better sense of the bigger mm-hmm. picture very early on in your career, you will be an asset to any company because when push comes to shove, when things are hard, you will know how to prioritize. You will know what the company considers important or not important. And that's that's invaluable. Mm, that's a good one. Thank you for that. And my final question, Adetunje, what do you know about, it could be so many things because we've covered so many grounds, but what, what do you know about African creativity today uh, that you wish you knew at the beginning of your career? I wish I knew that every single person in Africa or outside Africa was coming from a very, very, very unique selection of backgrounds. And each of those backgrounds have a story that people want to hear. I I, I didn't always have this much faith. Mm. I always thought my whole goal was to Leave, leave Africa, go work for, uh, you know, Wolf Orleans or Lando or, you know, RPG or something. But I changed my mind over the years because I found out that there's so much that we don't know. And these are my people, you know, they they identify with where I come from. If I had known that some of these people had the amazing stories I've heard so far, I would have paid more attention a long time ago. That is the that's the fact of the matter, and that's what I'm doing with with Studio mm-hmm. Black and the Bantu podcast. It's a place where they are focused on the African creatives who have 
really interesting stories. And no two, no two episodes are the same. And by the time you listen to the whole season and in the future, hmm. future seasons, you will begin to build a picture of what exactly is going on in many parts of the industry and how it all connects together. Because it's there, the amount of untold stories, the amount of perspectives that you will get is is unlike any other place that you might be listening to at the moment. And when it comes to Africa, at least, that's something that, honestly, you you really want to know about. Mm. I've really enjoyed speaking to you, Editor Jay, and um, good luck with everything that you're doing with Studio Black and, and Bansu. I think it's a fantastic project, and I recommend everyone listening should go and check it out, subscribe, like, share, uh, because it's fantastic content and perspectives that you don't normally hear or get access to in the mainstream. So, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to get you on the show today, because I, I think the story that you've told yeah. is one that we don't really hear very much, um, at, at, at least in, in Western Europe. So thank you very much for being on the show. We have been speaking with Aditunje Paul. He is currently growth marketing manager at Atomic and founder of Studio Black. If you enjoyed this conversation, then head over to Apple Podcasts where you can listen to over 130 such conversations we've had with world-class leaders in sales, marketing, brand strategy, go down the list. Thank you for all your feedback and suggestions on LinkedIn and email. Write to me at Nathan at agencydealmasters.com. Please follow me on Twitter at Nathan Barber. We would be unable to do this show without our very own Dealmasters. Tyler Baller is our editor. Christoph Buaszczyk is our executive producer. I'm Nathan Anibaba. You've been listening to Agency Dealmasters.